how happy is the blameless vessel's lot. The world forgetting by the world forgot. Eternal sunshine of a spotless mind. Each prayer accepted and each wish resigned. Is there any risk of brain damage? Well, uh, technically speaking, the procedure is brain damage, but it's, it's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss. What won't I miss? It's time for a little something. I forget. My notes say I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black, and I'm here with Father David Mowry, and it's time to discuss Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But they're erasing me, and I have no memory of any of this, so... David Mowry, I see your name on the screen. You can take over. Well, um, I, I think I'm in the right place. I don't quite remember how I got here. These aren't the clothes that I put on earlier this morning. How can you tell? <laughs> well, it, it's, a different, it's a different shade of black, I Catholic think. Catholic jokes. We got them. <laughs> hey, it's a different shade of black. But I remember, yeah, I remember this. I remember this now. Uh, here we are sitting down with, with Robert E.G. Black talking about <laughs> eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. And uh, Robert, what do you remember about this movie? It, it's got a pretentious title for sure. Um, let's see. Eternal sunshine is probably about some sort of monk who's like trying to make his brain better. That's what I'm thinking. Well, uh, you're not. Maybe he's in a time loop. <laughs> Well, you would think, <laughs> since we talked about Groundhog Day earlier, uh, you're not you're not far off from someone talking about someone trying to make his mind better. <laughs> uh, it's I think about the kind of, it it talks about memory, but unlike the situations we've had before with Ex Machina taking place in a bunker in Alaska with a yeah. super intelligent AI and a robot designed by a super genius and Groundhog Day, which is a time loop and time and space itself seem to be conspiring against our hero. The thing about Eternal Sunshine with the work with memory, it's all so banal. Yeah. Everything about the, the memory machine that we start to see a little bit of in minute 22 of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, it's all surrounded by the usual markers of doctor's offices. Mm -hmm. It's not a clean chrome kind of futuristic startup. It's a shabby little office in the middle of the city. With a little tiny waiting room. Yeah, a tiny waiting room, just repurposed rooms in the back. A bunch of college kids, it seems like, as employees. Yeah, driving out in their van. Yeah, you know, 20-somethings and 30-somethings who are just, you know, are, they're just working a job. They're not mm -hmm. doing any great things. They're just like, oh, yeah, well, this is the job. And sometimes I don't know what I'm doing. I need to call my boss over or <laughs> work in the receptionist office. So that struck me immediately and really endeared me to this film because I, I had not seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind before. Mm. That's my first time seeing it. And I'm, I'm not ashamed to say it. I cried at the end of this movie. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed the overall arc of the movie. And I, I confess that I kind of got an idea of where we were going from the beginning because I noticed, you know, in that monologue that Joel has at the beginning of the movie, he mentions, oh, there are pages torn out. When did I do that? Like, oh, okay. So yeah. this is the end of the the story and we're gonna we're gonna come back to this now in part because i knew what eternal sunshine was broadly right. about and it was broadly about a guy who goes through some kind of memory modification procedure because of a bad breakup but the details of it i was not familiar with and so the boy the just the imaginative use of cinematography mm -hmm. the staging of things and the editing of the shots and the way that they 
play with these characters and really draw you into that sense of getting lost inside your own head was really well done. And it made the whole thing make sense with a premise that would be so easy to be wildly surreal. Yeah. There was just enough intelligibility that you could track what was going on in the movie. Yeah. And they have something I think several minutes ago, I think I was complaining about it. They cut out a lot of the conversation in the early part of the film. Hmm. But because of that, we get these weird edits where the conversation doesn't seem to be going well, but when you cut to Clem, she's in a great mood. Yeah. And after the conversation, Joel seemed to have been miserable the whole time during, but afterward, he's great. He's happy. Mm-hmm. And it's like this weird sense of these people are having a different experience of the moment, even than we are. Yeah. And we don't know why yet. That just sums up relationships. Mm-hmm. When you look at a relationship from the outside in, like, oh boy, that that looks like it's going really poorly. How, how do you think that went? Like, oh, that was great. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. okay, cool. Good for you. And they, they made a good choice. One cut I do appreciate is that Joel got to his apartment and called Clem Mm -hmm. in the script. He calls Naomi first oh, and then calls Clem. Yeah. I like, I like that cut too. And Naomi was basically cut entirely out of the film. And I like that. I like that. Naomi just exists as a, as kind of a verbal construct only. Yeah. We don't even see her in any of the memories. She's just not there. Mm -hmm. And there's a meditation on memory there in and of itself. Mm -hmm. The Clem has just so overpowered whatever Naomi was to Joel that he doesn't think about Naomi other than as a abstract idea. Like, I can go back to Naomi. She was nice. Yeah. In the script, he literally did go back to Naomi like two nights before the movie starts. Mm. He just doesn't realize that (laughs) Mm -hmm. because he's in a funk. At the beginning of the movie, he's coming right out of the night that we're about to see start. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would point out also a fun thing from the script I noticed, and then him to last minute, actually, because he took the pill last minute, mm. is that in the script, he takes the pill, and then a page later, takes the pill again, even though it says there's one pill. Oh. And just like we're about to see the scene at the mailboxes at the end of this minute, we're already getting a repeat of something we've seen before. Mm-hmm. But they had an event, a specific event, repeat. Wow. Without even commenting on it. It didn't say, like, they didn't hadn't planned what their visuals were going to be yet mm-hmm. when that script was put out, but huh. I liked that touch. Here, of course, he touches a desk lamp, and I don't know if you caught this, but the lamp that goes out is not the lamp he touches. No. He reaches down to a lamp that has a bulb underneath, but the how it goes out is if he's like, like turning the light bulb. It's a different lamp. Yeah. And the light goes out. He's in a different spot than he was in the shop before. And so they're playing with our experience of space and time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're entering into Joel's disassociation mm-hmm. with his present surroundings. I, I wrote it's lights out in more ways than one in my notes because you I love I love because boy I have been there sometimes when I'm really sick you just lose your balance you're just yeah clutching at whatever yeah. support like okay 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 because you're just trying to self soothe and like all right it, this is weird and I don't like this and something is happening but I'm fine everything's okay yeah of course and then in the same minute we find out no it wasn't okay he's on not the floor okay. <laughs> he fell didn't, didn't he went to make sleep it there. <laughs> yeah, didn't even make it all the way into the bed. Yeah. In that moment where he's he's leaning up against the bookcase or or whatever it is, what I noticed is the skull on the clock pendulum. Oh, I didn't catch that. Which is of a piece with Joel's skeletal artwork. Yeah. That we'll see him do. To me, that struck me as as a big memento mori ah. kind of motif. That remember you will die. And so again, there's the memento, the the remembering, the memory 
of it. And that comes out of an old medieval practice that a lot of monks would keep a human skull on their writing desks. And that would serve as a memento mori that you would look at that and remember your own death, that it was coming for you. And so- And Nathan has skulls all over his house. Yeah, he does. You're right. Look at that. I don't think, I don't remember if any of them are real skulls, but he has decorative skulls Mm -hmm. all over. Mm Mm-hmm. And so for Joel to have that kind of fits with what we know from his own personality, his own artistic interests and his slightly depressive personality. Uh, That is, I think, something. Well, yeah, the only picture we've seen him draw since the beginning of the film was of a guy like bunkered down under a staircase. Yeah. Like hiding from something. (laughs) Joel Joel has some things to work through, I think. (laughs) Yeah. And this might not be the best way to work through it. But at this point, he's stuck. He took the pill. Mm hmm. And we cut back to the van. We hear Patrick, Showtime at the Apollo. And then we see Stan and Patrick at the back of the van unpacking. They might as well be a band out of the gig. Well, that or government agents on <laughs> a surveillance operation. That, yeah. when, I, when I saw the movie and you know the movie's playing with your perception and your expectations, it shows you the van following Joel and it mm-hmm. makes it clear that Joel knows that the, he is being followed. Like, uh, right, he looks be, out the window too. Yeah. Should, should I be worried? Is this what's supposed to have? What's going on? Is this like part <laughs> of the memory thing that he's having hallucinations, like a paranoia thing? And then you have your know, Frodo saying, oh, all right, showtime at the Apollo. I'm like, okay, well, this is not what I expected. <laughs> kind of just a bunch of normal schmucks just trying yeah, to get rolling through. some equipment into that into the building yeah and so it kind of raised a narrative question as to okay so if this is the procedure if this is the policy they're not in the room with the patient when he or she falls asleep why why this whole song and dance where they have to wait to go into the room after the person has fallen unconscious Probably because if they're in the room with him, they also have to erase that. Okay. It's one thing they don't cover in the movie is how they erase the memory of getting the procedure done Mm -hmm. entirely. A lot of it is tied up with Clem, so it's going to be emotional and there's a core there, but them walking in wouldn't necessarily connect. Okay. So at best, he'll remember a van outside. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he will. Yeah, so he'll remember that vague sense of dread of having been followed right before. Does he think the van is the one that, no, he doesn't think the van is the one that dinged up his car because he writes that note mm, to the yeah. other car. Anyway, okay, yeah, one less memory they have to do and make their jobs just infinitesimally easier. Right, because they wait until the light goes out. Yeah. So I guess they told him, take the mm-hmm. pill, get in bed, turn out the lights. Yeah. And then he doesn't need to know what else is going to happen. And he doesn't need to know how many people will be there, what's involved. Right. Because that's information he shouldn't have. Right. Because as it's clear later in the movie, a waking dream is a bad thing in this procedure from the doctor's perspective, from the technician's perspective. So the less information he has about that he's undergoing a procedure and is able to resist it, the better. Okay. Yeah. I think afterward, I feel like it would be useful if he knew that he erased something though. Yeah. Because he's going to know some things are wrong. And if he doesn't know why, then it's a whole other problem. Yeah. Knowing you erased something because it was painful. Fine. I can look into that or not, Mm -hmm. but I'm free from the emotional part. So it might be easier. All the people that we run into are getting memories erased of relationships. Yes. Well, one is a pet, but yeah, that's a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Even, yeah. Even with the dog, there's a relationship there. So 
I assume that they are all erasing relationships of people with whom they have no further contact. And that's the point of all the notes getting sent out because, right. oh my gosh, the postage that business <laughs> needs. Holy cow. Yeah, I don't know how they're in business. There's so much overhead. Because you can't charge people for this. <gasps> you can't charge them for it. No. Well, you'd have, oh boy. You have some oh. random charge on your credit card bill. <gasps> You're going to be investigating that thing. Yeah, well, you have to take cash or COD. Um, <laughs> Wow. And so it's got to come from donors. And who are those donors? And no way insurance covers this. And if there's donors, I'm getting suspicious. I've mentioned it on the show before. Show Dollhouse. Rich people end up just sticking their own memories in everyone's brains. Mm -hmm. Everyone's taking this Joel experience and they're playing it back for themselves for fun. Wow. They're not deleting this stuff. They're copying it. Whoa. Wake up, sheeple. (laughs) They're putting it in Ava's children. Yeah. Well, that, that does touch on, it is interesting that when Patrick says Showtime at the Apollo, mm. that kind of like pricked my ears. Is that, okay, well, I've, I've heard that before, but what does that actually mean? Because as it turns out, I was too young for the actual Showtime at the Apollo. Oh, I have seen Showtime at the Apollo. Because yeah, I, I never saw that on TV. I just, I wasn't, I was either, I wasn't up late enough for it or it just wasn't something that my family watched. But yeah, it was a variety TV show uh-huh. that ran through the 90s. And yeah. I think it was still on the air in the early 2000s. Maybe, I don't know. But Patrick certainly would have seen it. And it, it's fascinating that he names a TV show as the cue for what's about to happen. That he sees this as kind of voyeuristic entertainment as something that he is disconnected from. Even though from their perspective, it's going to be really boring. Yeah. They're just going to sit there barely hitting buttons on a computer. Exactly. But for him, Patrick has already inserted himself into the story, which is another one of those things I picked up on at the beginning of the movie when Patrick shows up. Can I help you with something? I thought, okay, he's connected with all of this somehow. He's not just some random guy. Mm -hmm. What does he know? And yeah, so it was just interesting that there's this, this entertainment aspect for Patrick, that he's, he's trying to live through a kind of vicarious experience, even in this relationship that he'll have with Clem. Yeah. And in the script, Patrick was also just singing. He was sort of humming in the movie, okay. but it wasn't clear what. In the script, he's specifically singing the song Maniac. Oh. And then he starts singing again when they're in the building. That's why the, then Stan tells him to be quiet. Mm-hmm. In the movie, he's just being noisy with the equipment. So Stan tells him to be quiet. Yeah. Stan is professional for now. Yes. Well, he's better at his job, mm-hmm. I think. And well, yeah, I don't think he invites Mary out with him all the time. That seems like a new. That, w- that would, boy, that would be a lot to have that kind of weird party over the unconscious. Every yeah. Single- what do you do at your job? Well, we smoke weed, steal their alcohol and dance in our underwear on top of them. I don't know. I don't have more people working for us, honestly. <laughs> You definitely want to erase that memory if Joel wakes up. Uh, yeah. He woke up during. We have to give him a whole new procedure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they go into the front room, down the hallway. I love that Patrick is wearing yeah. the, the colander or whatever well, it's it is. It's an easy way to carry it. Yeah. They got to open the door. They have keys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. And they don't just have one key. No, they've got a ring. Yeah. They needed whatever key he needs. Maybe front door and his door are different, mm-hmm. but maybe they also keep keys for like the whole week's worth of things. Yeah. And again, that's weird. How do the people get their keys back? I assume they have their own key copying machine and they just must. make their own copies so that you don't even know. Do they have a, uh, they have a referral service with a locksmith? 
Yeah. Send a lock. Hey, you go, go to this. We'll give you a referral. Go to this person's house and offer to change their locks. <laughs> cheap. Yeah. Real cheap. Uh-huh. So they don't get suspicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Patrick doesn't have to just look at that stuff. He's got packed away in his backpack. He could just sneak into Joel's apartment whenever. Well, not whenever. If he had more time. Yeah, uh, that's right. He doesn't have a lot of time. The end of the movie is only what? Two mornings from now. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they find uh, Joel. He is on the floor. He did not make it to his bed. Poor guy. Yeah. Fortunately, you're taking a pill like that and passing out. You don't notice. Correct. Probably that you, missed. you probably don't even remember that moment. Pill that strong is kicking in quick. Mm-hmm. And so then it fades to black. And then we are close on Joel in his bed, except his bed's now in the front the mail room at the entrance to the building. Yeah, this is the start of the well-structured surreal nature Mm -hmm. of this film where Joel starts to have this disassociative experience. And in the beginning, he's kind of aware that I'm in bed, but there's this memory playing and I'm in the memory, but I'm also not in the memory. And again, it's that kind of TV kind of aspect. I guess the first analogy that I thought of with this is like, you're watching something on a screen, but he's watching something that's being destroyed. So it's blurry. Yeah. It's working its way backward. We might notice that it is the conversation we just saw last minute Mm -hmm. as Joe went in because Frank mentioned Clementine. So it's the first memory that had that emotion connected to her, Mm -hmm. which wouldn't have been a memory he gave them because it just happened. No, but I suppose that their system works. Yeah, that's that's the thing about their system. They're, They're never going to get the patient to remember everything about the relationship in their office session. It's getting those emotional cores, those hooks and triggers properly calibrated so they can find it wherever it happens. Which comes down to a combination of their explanation of memory and the sort of reality of how memory works is memories connect to other memories and Mm -hmm. their machine just follows those little branches around. Yeah. Now, because it is a movie, the memories are represented as audiovisual experiences because it's a movie. But that, that was a thought I had like, well, I, for some people, that's how memory work. But it reminded me, I had a conversation with one of my students. I teach at the seminary in mm, Chicago, yeah. and he and I were having a conversation about memory. And he was saying, so your father, when, when you imagine, do you think in words? Ah. And I said, well, I mean, it depends if I'm thinking about words, then yeah. But if I'm like thinking about my lesson plan. I don't know if I'm thinking, I, I, it kind of tripped me up. Like, I don't know. Do I actually think in written words or do I think in the concepts that the words represent? And he was coming to realize that there were other people who thought differently than he did, yep. that in terms of the way they visualized information and experienced their own consciousness. Or some that can't visualize things. Yeah, they exactly. Have, they they don't the- see the visuals. Mm-hmm. And that's strange to me because I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a very strong visual imagination. You know, I can yeah. right now I'm I'm calling up the the memory of all of us at that long table at the biscuit place when we got mm-hmm. together in Portland. And I can I can remember that. I remember who I was sitting with. I don't remember what we're talking about, but that that visual, that image is very present to me. Yep. And it's wild when I come across someone, it's like, oh no, I don't I don't remember that. Right. Oh, at least that way. I remember, yeah, I remember that we were there and they remember the abstract reality of it, but they don't have the same vivid picture of things. Yeah. That can be strange to think about, but that's sort of why movies are fun is that people are going to experience these things differently. And Joel Mm -hmm. is going to experience his relationship differently than Clem. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining now a scene of like later when they're erasing things of Joel, just sitting, he's not anywhere with Clem. 
but it's a moment where he was thinking about her. Oh. And so now that that moment also has to go. But it's just him like just sitting at his desk at work. How solipsistic do you get with that? Right. <laughs> but then also, how do you show that to the audience in a movie? Mm-hmm. He's thinking like, about how do we know what he's thinking. He's about? thinking about a memory. So we need to erase this memory of him thinking about him thinking about it. Right. Maybe you'd have to have like he has her picture on his desk and he glances at it. That's gone. Yeah. Picture goes blank. That could be enough, mm-hmm. but it also is an easy thing they could edit out. And they took a lot out of what they filmed for this movie. And that's very impressive to me because, boy, I love a good hundred minute movie. And I was mm-hmm. very, very pleased with how tight yes. and well paced Eternal Sunshine feels because they throw and, a lot at you. Oh, and they cut. So especially the beginning, there's so much dialogue in the script and they filmed it. They filmed those scenes whole with two cameras. Wow. There's one pointed at Joel, one pointed at Clem and filmed mm-hmm. and then came in in the edit and took out whole sections of conversation. Some for the better, some for the worse. Like mm-hmm. she had a whole rant about her goal in life and it was lovely mm. early in the film. It was a bit much. Mm-hmm. And so if that sequence had stayed where the one version of the script hadn't be later, it would have hit very nicely. Yeah, because with all those things cut out, the message of how do I put this? The message of the movie becomes about that uniqueness of personhood. Yeah. That there's something that subsists underneath our memories that is still essential to who we are as persons. Yep. And it is that essential foundation that explains why Joel and Clem can still connect and have this relationship because with their memories erased, they're still in some way the same people. They're they're not the same people because they had the memories and they were taken away. But Joel is still Joel and Clem is still Clem. And yeah. they're at that same starting point as they were at the beach party where they didn't know each other and didn't know anything about each other. And so there's just that chemistry of two people getting to know each other. Yeah. And with the whole scenes of dialogue taken out, that emphasizes kind of the mysteriousness of the relationship that we don't have good reasons for why Joel would call Clem. Right. It seemed to go badly for him. Yeah. But he leaves happy and he Mm -hmm. calls her immediately. Yeah. And that gives us a sort of mystery is why is he happy? And that's Mm -hmm. the whole point of the film is because somewhere either he recognizes her despite the erasure or it didn't matter that she was erased because who she is is still something he's interested in. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah, because there's that like the, towards the end of the memory erasure sequence where Clem whispers, "Meet me in Montauk," mm-hmm. which then recontextualizes Joel's sprint across exactly. the train platform. It's like this weird like Inception moment. I can hear Hans Zimmer's score blaring in my ears <laughs> as I was watching that screen and seeing the little top spinning.
like is is this like Joel inceptioning himself somehow? <laughs> kind of. Because this is his memories, but it only because it only works if they both show up in Montauk. So how do they both show up in Montauk at the same time? Right. And in some way, because what we're seeing in his brain of her is arguably just him mm-hmm. or his version of her. Right. But something in her brain the night she was erased, which was, we don't know, a few nights ago, mm-hmm. also ended in that same place that she would go to Montauk. Yeah. But she didn't go the next morning or she's been going every day because she doesn't know why. Yeah. Maybe she's really perplexed. And then when this guy shows up, of course, she's going to latch onto him because she's like, maybe that's why I needed to be in Montauk. It, it could because, it, well, yeah, that there's a whole like Clem's side of this whole experience is a complete black box. We have no idea because we only know Clem through Joel's memories. Exactly. And because Kate Winslet is just so charming, it's very easy to (laughs) be like, oh, this is a very accurate picture of who Clem is. But it's it's not. This is just Joel's experience. It's what he remembers. Yeah. And is what he emotionally remembers. So it's the happy and the sad, not some of the boring. And that's the beauty of uh, the tapes at the end of the movies that you get what you never actually get in real life. You, you never actually get, what does this other person really think about me? No, because they're not going to tell you. No. The only time they'll tell you is if you break up, in which case they're probably only going to say horrible things. Mm-hmm. And this is the worst possible kind of breakup, but both of them having then heard what in their own voice, what is awful yeah. about this other person, which there's, there's a whole lot there. Still, and this is what made me cry at the end of the movie. Still, they made yep. the decision to try anyway. Yep. That not only did they, and I'm tearing up right now just thinking about it, not only do they have what so many couples wish for, they wish for that second chance. Yeah. Like, oh, we made mistakes. We did things that we regret. And now that is permanently a part of our relationship. And we can't go backwards from here, but we still want to start over because we recognize there's a good here that's been damaged here. They get that second chance, but they also still have what they thought in that moment of regret. Yep. They've been through that experience of the restart, but then have been given back. Here's what you thought about this person when you made this really consequential decision to have, what did the doctor say? Minor brain damage. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's minor brain damage. Well, technically it is brain damage. Technically it is brain damage. Like, uh. But it's not a bar with a heavy night of drinking. Uh. <laughs> but they still, they, even knowing all that, they take that chance. All that is to say, just the the victorious feeling I felt when Joel comes around the corner of that corridor at the end of the movie. It's like, yes, he's chasing her. Yes, we're getting the romantic ending. Yes, I'm such a sap. This is what I want. I want the happy ending. Mm-hmm. But just the honesty and the vulnerability between both of them where she's saying, look, this, this is who I am. And I, yeah. I still might end up feeling trapped and bored in the relationship. Joel's, okay. Yeah. You know, like, you know, Joel's willing to try. He's, he's willing to take a chance. You might end up trapped and bored in any relationship. You might as well give this one a second shot. Exactly. But even then, the movie doesn't play it like romantic comedy happy where they like kiss and it's great. It's hopeful, but it's not. We don't know. It's hopeful, but it's ordinary. And that's one of the things exactly. I love about the movie that, like I said before, with all the, the fantastic science of the memory erasure is treated as an ordinary thing. Mm-hmm. It's just it's in the context of ordinary life. It just happens. It just happens. Yeah. Like you went to a dentist office. Right. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's basic. Here too, it's hopeful but ordinary. This is what any couple would hope to have happen with a bad argument and then hope for reconciliation. Yes. Because you can't change what happened. No. You can only change what that means for the relationship. 
and how you look at that. And that that's a lot of work that I do with people around forgiveness because people come in first, they're, they're hesitant to just talk about the pain that they've experienced in the first place. Yeah. And so being able to create a space where that's able to be named and then to be able to try to figure out, okay, what, but I'm, I'm taught by my faith to forgive those who sin against me. How in the world do I do that? <laughs> and, I, and I always tell people, look, it's not a denial of the hurt. Right. You can't change what happened. Forgiveness is not about forgetting what happened. Forgiveness is rather a choice about the relationship itself, that I'm going to choose to look at this relationship, not through the wound not through the hurt, but I'm going to look at this relationship through love, that I'm going to desire what's best for this other person, acknowledging that that person hurt me, acknowledging that person did wound me. And I, I need to change the way I love this person in response because I'm we're not doormats. We're not meant to be walked all over. Yeah. If someone hurt me, I'm going to make a choice. But okay, they did that on purpose. So I'm not. I'm going to love that person by staying away from them. Right. The, it could be the end of the relationship. It still has to be a positive thing for you. Exactly. A positive thing for me. Or it's going to get worse. It's going to fester. Right. And there is also what I try to help people understand that it, it can be a positive thing for the other person as well. Right. That what you're doing is you are removing a possibility for them to do something that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Because as, yeah. as Plato stated, it is worse to commit injustice than it is to suffer injustice. Mm-hmm. And so one of the most loving things you can do is to break away from a relationship because you are removing a possibility for that person doing something wrong. It's good for them and it's good for you. So yeah. it's, it's a mutuality thing. And so here you get at the end of this movie with Joel and Clem making the decision to try again, you have that recontextualizing of the relationship that they see each other and they've heard their own voice explaining this other person. And they've kind of externalized that interior monologue of resentment. Yeah. And they're choosing to not let that define the relationship. It still exists. It's even more real now than it was before because now it exists on tape. It's recorded. Yeah. It's, a, it's a matter of access that anyone can have so long as you have a tape deck. And well, in 2004, that, that was on its way they out. But anyway, <laughs> but now there's Joel has a lot look- of vinyl still. Joel, so. Joel does have a lot. He is he is a hipster, He's got old stuff. isn't he? Uh-huh. Yeah. Now they can look at the relationship through love and through hope, even yeah. while acknowledging those other things. Oh, man. What a good movie. It's a mm-hmm. good movie. Yep. When backed into a corner, this is the one I usually say is my favorite. Mm. I don't like that question because usually it's mm-hmm. like someone asked me a top 10 one year and my top 10 list had 24 movies on it. <laughs> i'm like that's the best i can do sorry these seven movies are tied for number five yeah my bracket of movies on cock and bull was 387 mm. i believe that i came up with that was basically just going through my imdb and finding everything i had given a nine or a ten wow that is a surprisingly deep pool of nine and ten reviews well uh, i don't have yeah. i don't have the energy to go through 300 movies most of period. the movies i've seen i haven't rated on uh, IMDb. okay I see. So it was also some memory of older movies, but mostly it was just what else could fit and what movie Mm -hmm. is worth talking about too. Cause I knew Mm -hmm. I was going to at least mention each one in passing, Mm -hmm. but I'll watch anything. I'll watch crap too. (laughs) I don't think I've ever even asked you to be on the room minute. Did I? You did not. I was grateful for that. Okay. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I am a fan of mystery science theater 3000, but my Mm -hmm. appetite for garbage only goes so far. (laughs) I actively seek the really bad ones sometimes. I prefer them to be bad from incompetence, mm-hmm. but also I feel bad when I'm laughing at someone's incompetence. A bad movie is much more interesting because when you have just a boring movie, like, well, this movie is 
competently made, but has nothing to say. Yeah. Uh, it's even worse. It's predictable. Like, okay. And then this happened mm-hmm. yeah, and this happened. A bad movie. You have no idea what's going to happen next. Right. Anything could happen. Uh, yeah. One of the worst, just for listeners, find a movie called things. Awful. <laughs> Horribly boring. Horribly filmed. And occasionally entirely random. Wow. <laughs> Unlike Shark Exorcist, which is just offensive. Now, is that the sequel to Velocipaster? No. Velocipaster, I think, was trying for something. Oh. Shark Exorcist is just exploitative and bad. Oh, okay. Velocipaster, I think they wanted to do something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just weird. Like carousel is that what it's called where a carousel horse gets off of a thing Uh uh-huh that was fun yeah (laughs) but kind of dumb but then there is one about a pinata i think it's just called killer pinata which with a different filmmaker would have been amazing because a pinata exists to be beaten Mm -hmm. and destroyed and it takes it personally and starts killing people because of it and it was great story about the suppressed thing and it could have been really good and it was entertaining. I think that makes Ex Machina the spiritual successor to Killer Pinata. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. He makes these things and then abuses them so that they want out. <laughs> yeah. On that note. What a note to end on. <laughs> where if people want to hear you talk about other movies. Uh, well, you can find my other appearances on Movies by Minutes podcast at my website, fatherdavidmowry.com. This episode of eternal sunshine we're talking about reconciliation and forgiveness and uh, one of the one of the the points about forgiveness is that you you look at the relationship through a new lens and where that didn't happen was in batman v superman dawn of justice where batman literally puts on hate <laughs> armor in order to uh, protect himself so if you want to hear me hold forth about the the need for forgiveness and the the detrimental effects of hate and resentment you can listen to the batman v superman minute podcast. Thank you for listening. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for Minutia Ex Machina, every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and every Thursday for more Eternal Sunshine. And you can follow all three shows on one feed. Just search an existential trilogy. Follow this show on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Spotless Minute. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time. This is it, Joel. Oh, God. It's going to be gone soon. Okay, we'll I know. What do we do? We're going off. Can you hear me? <laughs>